from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started! A little bit better than dope is, a brand new kid to show biz, with knowledge I persevere, but if I not do me a let me say right off the bat here that I, I really don't actually feel like doing a show today. I mean, I do because I'm pumped and I'm ready and I got a lot of stuff to talk about. But it's a Saturday and I'm trying to take the day off and I was going to play a lot of Rage. But then I got distracted with Reddit and Steam and other stuff. So I haven't been playing a lot of Rage. But I only have five more missions to go to finish that game. And I've been on it for like a month. But anyway, nobody tunes in to hear that. The point is, I wasn't going to do a show today. But then I realized the people have a right to know then when i feel so stuffed i can't eat anymore i just use the restroom and then i can eat more you should write a book fry people need to know about the can eat more we went to see hannibal burris it was awesome he did a show here in medicine wisconsin it was fantastic he did this whole thing about how uh people always say to me man thank you for coming to Madison Wisconsin thank you for coming to Madison Wisconsin and uh, he said you know I didn't come here just for on a whim <laughs> y'all are paying me to be here this is my job so you don't have to thank me for that so it was a funny show it was a good time and when he came back for his encore he was like alright I'll do a few older jokes I'm glad y'all want to hear it and I shouted out we love you and he was like thank you and then uh, he did some jokes and then he was like I really like being here in Madison, y'all get a lot of my stuff. And I said, thank you for coming to Madison, Wisconsin. And a lot of people laughed. So it made me feel good that I got a laugh at someone else's show. It was a moment between us, you and me, Hannibal, <laughs> Annie Bell, whatever. Um, yeah, the other thing I want to say before we get to the current events is there was a really interesting episode of Philosophy Bites recently, which is a podcast about philosophy. They do a really good job of covering a lot of different issues, and they don't dumb anything down, but they also don't require that you have a PhD in philosophy to understand what they're talking about. So um, anyway, Philosophy Bites is a good show. I'll put a link in the show notes. And they had this guy named Richard Sorabjian, and he was talking about Gandhi. And the point that he made was that Gandhi had a moral council that he, could, he knew he could never reach. Uh, and I think this is a really important point because we all have that same idea in, in, in simple terms. We all have a standard of morality that we know we can't reach. And that's okay. It's, it's, it's a valuable thing to say, okay, I can't live up to this thing. I mean, I believe every human on the planet lives inside a least one contradiction. I'm a vegetarian. I think it's wrong to eat animal flesh because it tastes good. Now, that said, sometimes I eat fish because it tastes good, and that's a contradiction, and I think it's wrong, but I still do it anyway. And I think everybody has something like that in their life, at least one thing. A lot of us have more than one thing. But the point I want to make is that it's good to strive for that moral code anyway, and to say, look, maybe I can't live like this all the time, but this is how I think you ought to live. And to shoot for that, maybe just for that one day. Maybe you could be like, okay, today I'm going to live up to my moral standard, yeah? Or this week, or you know, I 
I know that come December, I'm going to have to violate my moral code, but that doesn't mean I should throw away my moral code altogether. And I think this is the point I want to make, is that a lot of people, especially people in the United States, seem to think that if you if you do a thing that you believe is wrong, what you need to do is find some way to wheedle around the issue and try to convince yourself that what you're doing isn't wrong. But that's bollocks. If you're doing something you believe it's wrong, you need to say, okay, I'm doing this thing I believe is wrong. I, you know, maybe I'm just being weak, or maybe I'm just not living up to my code, or maybe there is a reason why I need to do it despite the fact that it's wrong. It doesn't change the fact that it's wrong. Because this is, I think, that slippery slope a lot of people get on there like, well, what I'm doing isn't wrong because blah, 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 blah. And then, as a result, they believe that the thing itself isn't wrong and they can do it whenever they want. But that's a moral loophole that people look for and it's bogus and you shouldn't live like that. So, the end of lecture. Uh, let's talk about some current events There's here. No Thanks to Jason Gullar for uh, his article he sent me about this earthquake that took place in Dallas. It was an earthquake that one expert says is linked to fracking. Now, if you don't know what fracking is, uh, I've said it before on the podcast, you need to watch a movie called Gasland because it's a really interesting look at this whole process and how it affects the environment. And the jury's out, I know, and there are some people who say that the documentary film overblows the danger of fracking. But you know what? I think it's better for us to be paranoid about the potential consequences of environmental destruction because over the last mm, 50, 100 years, we've been way too uncautious I suppose incautious is probably the word, about what damage we're doing to the environment what it's going to mean for future generations. So I think this is one case where we could step back and be like, you know what, let's err on the side of caution here for a change. What do you say, guys? No, we need to drill into the earth and then shoot a bunch of water and chemicals in and burst open the earth and get the natural gas and then dump a whole bunch of waste into the rivers. That can't go wrong, can it? Um, I should say that I'm always wary of experts, but on the other hand, if a person studies the thing for a living, they have my attention. I'm sorry. I think that merits something. Okay. Now, on the other hand, I don't like how their word is often gospel, especially when they're often paid huge salaries by corporations or industry front groups. So I take the term expert with a grain of salt whenever I see it in a headline. I'm like, okay, where is this expert coming from? Because that's really the question. It's not that a person is an expert, therefore we should automatically trust them, or a person is an expert and therefore we should never trust them, but rather, where are these experts coming from? from, right? And and who who which interests do they serve? And how can you tell? Well, you'll need to look into where they've come from and what they've written before and all the rest of it. That's why I hate Malcolm Gladwell's because he was a shill for the tobacco industry and all sorts of other hideous industry groups for a long time. But here's this article. Uh, three unusual earthquakes that shook a suburb west of Dallas over the weekend appear to be connected to the past disposal of wastewater from local hydraulic fracturing operations, a geophysicist who has studied earthquakes in the region says, and this is from Yahoo News, uh, before a series of small quakes on Halloween 2008, the Dallas area had never recorded a magnitude 3 earthquake, says Cliff Froelich, associate director and senior research scientist at the University of Texas at Austin's Institute for Geophysics. USGS data show that since then, it has felt at least one quake at or above a magnitude of three every year except 2010. So, uh, between 20, 2008 and 2010, uh, 2012, there's been at least one earthquake of magnitude three every year except 2010. So, that's pretty phenomenal. And he's, uh, Froelich says he doesn't think, he doesn't. 
Froelich says he doesn't think it's a coincidence that an intensification in seismic activity in the Dallas area came the year after a pocket of ground just south of and thousands of feet below the DFW airport began to be inundated with wastewater from hydraulic fracturing. So, dude, I don't think it's a stretch, and I don't, I mean, you know, I'm not an expert about geophysics, but I dare say we ought to listen to people who study that, even if their findings don't go against what the fracking industry wants. The fracking industry. And for those who don't know, that was, the word frack was also what Battlestar Galactica, that reboot of the sci-fi series, uh, that's what they used in term of the F word, in terms of replacing that word when somebody needed to curse. Their idea was, I guess, like 2000 years in the future, people won't say the F word. They'll just go, oh, frack you! And so I, I respect the attempt, but I, I just think it ended up sounding pretty silly. So when people say, what the frack? It's just like, okay, I know you're a Battlestar Galactica fanboy or fangirl, and that's just silly because it still sounds silly when you say that. And to a lot of us, it brings to mind hydraulic fracturing, which is an evil thing to do to the Earth. Meanwhile, there was this other report that came out from, and Democracy Now! covered it, so I'll put a link in the thing. Uh, this is from a government report. Uh, the headline was, Intelligence Fusion Centers Yield, quote, Useless Info. A new, this is Democracy Now! reporting. A new government report has found an intelligence program that formed a major part of domestic counterterrorism efforts in the United States has been almost entirely useless. A bipartisan report released by a Senate subcommittee examines the network of so-called fusion centers created after the 9-11 attacks to promote intelligence sharing among local, state, and federal authorities. Investigators have accused the centers of becoming bastions of waste that collected practically no useful information and potentially violated people's civil liberties. According to the report, the centers quote, often produced irrelevant, useless, or inappropriate intelligence, and many produced no intelligence reporting whatsoever, end quote. As much as $1.4 billion in taxpayer funds designated for the centers has gone unaccounted for by federal officials, the report found. And the this, you know, look, hey, I understand that after 9-11, we recognized that there was an intelligence breakdown and that we needed to work in order to plug the holes in the intelligence center, but I'm sorry, the intelligence breakdown was Bush didn't, and, and, and Condoleezza Rice didn't bother reading the freaking report that said, uh, oh, bin Laden determined to attack in the United States. And, and there were all sorts of warnings that the Bush administration didn't bother taking into account. Uh, but whatever. I mean, I, I'm not trying to cast stones here. What I'm trying to say is, look, it, we can't just say well, anything you want to do in terms of fighting terrorism is okay, whether it works or not. We need to check and see if it's working. And if these fusion centers are yielding useless information, uh, then we should get rid of them. And it's wasteful money. And and that's a much better source for your acts to go after in the budget than PBS's Mitt Romney, you moron. Uh, there's also been, and the final item in the current events file this week is from PB&J, Police Brutality and Justice, uh, New, New York Police Department officers shoot and kill unarmed driver. Uh, is a horrifying story, very sad. It comes to us from RT, which is Russia Today. Um, Polanco was driving himself, there's a guy named Polan uh, Leon Polanco, I think. He was driving himself and two friends, one of which was an off-duty police officer, home after work around 5.15 a.m. After cutting off the cops in their unmarked car, which the trio did not realize was a police car, the three friends were harassed in what they described as, quote, an act of road rage. The police chased them, quote, sticking their middle fingers at us and screaming obscenities, said 36-year-old Diane 
Diane DeFerrari, a bartender who sat in the passenger seat of Polanco's car. DeFerrari told the New York Post that with rifles drawn, the police officers pulled over the vehicle and ordered Polanco and his friends to put their hands up. But in an instant, before Polanco had time to take his hands off the steering wheel, he was shot dead. I don't really have anything to add here. It sucks, and it's, you know, I, I'm not confident that this guy will get the jail time he ought to get, and I'm just really, really sad to see police officers doing that sort of thing, but it shouldn't be tolerated, and he ought to go to prison, and we'll see. Respect my to take knocks. Bow, move from the gate now. Economic stuff. There was a strike at Foxconn. Dude! China Labor... Well, this is an article from China Labor Watch. Uh, China Labor Watch <laughs> announced that... I love when people release things in the third person like that. It's like Ricky Henderson said today that... China Labor Watch announced that at 1 p.m. on October 5th, Beijing time, a strike occurred at Foxconn's Zhengzhou factory that, according to workers, involved three to 4,000 production workers. In addition to demanding that workers work during the holiday, Foxconn raised overly strict demands on product quality without providing worker training for the corresponding skills. This led to workers turning out products that did not meet standards and ultimately put a tremendous amount of pressure on workers. Additionally, quality control inspectors fell into conflicts with workers and were beat up multiple times by workers. Factory management turned a deaf ear to complaints about these conflicts and took no corrective measures. The result of both of these circumstances was a widespread work stoppage on the factory floor among workers and inspectors. Later in the piece, it was reported that factory management and Apple, despite design defects, raised strict quality demands on workers, including indentation standards of 0.02 millimeters and demands related to scratches on frames and back covers. With such demands, employees could not even turn out iPhones that met the standard. This led to a tremendous amount of pressure on workers. On top of this, they were not permitted to have a vacation during the holiday. This combination of factors led to the strike. Good job, Foxconn workers. Go for it. Take on Foxconn. You totally deserve better working conditions. And I'm confident in saying that from my comfortable home here in Madison, Wisconsin, because Foxconn is messing you over and people are paying obscene amounts of money for these iPhones and they'll do anything it takes to get them. So there's no reason you shouldn't have a decent standard of living and curtailing of work hours and still get a living wage. And it's totally bogus. Apple is screwing you over and you don't need to take it. Speaking of things we don't need to take, I'm going to keep pounding my desk until everybody agrees with my points that I'm making. I don't care if my paper clips are going all over the floor. Take that, paper clips. I have this little thing in my desk. There's a tray that comes out with the keyboard. See, that's it. In, out, in, out. Uh, and it has a little place for paper clips. You hear that? And sometimes when I pound the desk, paper clips bounce a little bit. And sometimes they go on the floor. It's a fascinating sidebar, I know. If only I had a video of that process I could add, then the viewing experience would truly be complete. It would be a synesthetic... Okay, Smiley and West had on this woman named Lori Wallach, uh, or Wallach, uh, from Tradewatch. And if you don't know, Tradewatch is a great organization. It's part of Public Citizen, which is the organization that Ralph Nader founded. And they've done a lot of great work for 
over a decade uh, keeping track of global trade issues. And uh, the WTO and the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank are their main um, areas that they watch. But they also keep a close eye on these trade deals that come up from time to time, including NAFTA and uh, the you know the rules of the WTO, which are basically an enlarged form of NAFTA. Uh, the trade so-called trade barriers. You know, if a country, I mean, there's a lot to be said here. I will put a link to the piece I wrote called Global Economics 101 because I tried to break down everything I understood about uh, how international trade works and what every human being ought to know about how this stuff works because it has an effect on all of us. So, for instance, the very simple part to explain is that this concept of a trade barrier, okay, when the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund or the World Trade Organization uh, have these rules, and if anybody wants to be part of the WTO, they need to obey these rules. And one of the rules is that if... Uh, one nation is doing something that another nation doesn't like and they believe that it's inhibiting the flow of trade, that nation can take the other nation that's establishing the rule to a tribunal or threaten to do it, and generally speaking, that will be considered a uh, barrier to free trade. And this includes things like uh, banning the sale of things that are dangerous, uh, environmental regulations, minimum wage, things that most human beings think are a good idea. Yeah, I don't believe we should have, you know, there was a, a gasoline additive that was found to cause cancer, and Canada banned it. And the United States went to this NAFTA ruling board and said, Canada's banning this uh, ga gasoline additive, and... That's not that's that's hurting our profits and it should not be allowed. And the NAFTA board said, yeah, that's right. Canada, you have to accept this thing for sale that is proven to be a carcinogen. And that's one example of these barriers to free trade. So Trade Watch does a lot of great job, uh, a lot of great work on the, on monitoring these trade agreements. And there's a new one coming up uh, called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and this is freaking horrifying. And it's one of these things that we don't, you know, if you never heard of the multilateral agreement on investment, it, it was killed about 10 years ago. It's not an accident that you never heard about it. it. It's it's something that isn't get doesn't get publicized except in sometimes in the business press, but it has a huge effect on every person on the planet. And we ought to be all involved in the decisions that whether this thing gets established or not. And that's what the protests in Seattle are all about. Every time there's a WTO meeting, there was one in Qatar, there was one in Mexico City, there was one in Quebec uh, or Montreal, one in some Canadian city not long ago. And there's always huge protests outside these events. And the reason is because people feel like the democratic process isn't being respected when these agreements are agreed upon. It's just a trade representative from every country that comes up and says, hey, w what should we do in terms of making trade better? And by and large, those trade representatives are representing the interests of the huge corporations and the powerful industry lobbyists in their country, and the rest of us who have to live with the consequences of these corporate decisions, we don't really have a say in how this trade gets done. And most people look at trade and they're like, uh, international trade, economics, like their heads get bashed open when they collapse in a daze. Because uh, it's so boring, and it is boring, I'm not going to lie, it's boring, but it's very, very, very important. So I'm going to try to make it exciting. I'm doing that dance move from Showgirls when she's waving her hands in front of her face, like, everybody's got A's and stuff. No, that's a line from Showgirls, that's the most horrible movie ever, and for some reason I watched it again recently with the Duchess, and I was like, this is going to be hilarious, and it is funny how stupid it is, but there's also a really horrifying scene toward the end that I totally forgot about, and I don't know how I forgot about that, so whatever, don't watch Showgirls. Uh, Robocop 2 is the one I can't wait to watch again, because that's so bad, it's funny. Showgirls is so bad, it's funny, but then it's just bad and terrifying and sad and hideous and horrible, and it's, it's this torture, you know, um, voyeurism thing, whatever. Trade and Trans-Pacific Partnership. The Public Citizen website puts it like this. 
Have you heard? The Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, free trade agreement is a stealthy policy being pressed by corporate America, a dream of the 1% that in one blow could offshore millions of American jobs, free the banksters, get that? It's a portmanteau of bankers and gangsters. Uh, free the banksters from oversight, ba ban Buy America policies needed to create green jobs and rebuild our economy, uh, decrease access to medicine, flood the U.S. with unsafe food and products, and empower corporations to attack our environmental and health safeguards. Closed-door talks are going on between the U.S. and Australia, Brunei, Chile, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, Malaysia, and Vietnam, with countries like Japan and China potentially joining later. 600 corporate advisors have access to the text, while the public, members of Congress, journalists, and civil society are excluded. And so far, what we know about what's in there is very scary. So... This is one of those cases where I would recommend everybody take a look at the treaty themselves, but you can't because we don't have access to it. So that's priority number one is for us to get access to it. And Trade Watch is working to try to get people to encourage the people who are negotiating this treaty to give, for instance, Congress in the United States. Congress makes the gets the final say about whether or not we're going to sign on to a trade agreement because trade agreements supersede the U.S. Constitution. There's a bit in the U.S. Constitution that says if we agree to a trade agreement, then that it takes precedence over any national law that we have. We have to abide by the trade agreement. And the same is true about international, uh, you know, uh, treaties in terms of working with other nations and military exercises and the rest of it. So Congress needs to be incredibly vigilant about what it agrees to. And if they don't have access to this trade agreement, the TPP, then it's just ridiculous. We shouldn't have anything to do with it because we're signing on to things we don't even know what it is. And what's probably going to happen, which is the same thing that happened with NAFTA, is that a lot of it was kept secret until the very last minute, and then they drop it on Congress's desk and they say, this is going to create 10 billion jobs. Vote yes or no. And people are scared to look like they're voting against making new jobs so a lot of people in congress are just like okay i'll vote for that okay we don't need no contract remember that eddie murphy raw right that's what congress does they they just roll over for the trade representative and we get stuck with a lot of stupid trade agreements that hurt most people so look into the tpp be aware of it whenever somebody mentions tp you could be like hey that sounds like tpp which is this trade agreement that that annoying jerk duke scaff mentioned on his stupid podcast you don't have to use exactly those words but it'll be funny if you do and then people will be like why are you listening to a stupid podcast and you could be like it's not really stupid he's very self-deprecating and it's hilarious when i listen i'm like falling out of my seat which is dangerous because sometimes i'm driving and that means i'm falling out of my car I suppose you could fall into the passenger seat with laughter, but it would still be dangerous to do that while you're driving. So don't, maybe you just shouldn't listen to this while you're driving, because maybe you'll be laughing so hard that you'll wet yourself and you'll fall into the passenger seat and you'll crash and the paramedics will show up to find you collapsed in the passenger seat with soiled trousers and they'll be like, what's going on here? And you're like, before you help me, you've got to turn off my podcast. It's so funny. I know that probably doesn't ever happen. Thank you for coming to Madison. Did that make you laugh, I hope? Because it made people laugh at the Hannibal Burris show. Uh, there was another piece uh, from economywatch.com, which is a very interesting website. And it was from, uh, oh, the dude, uh, Sachs, Goldman Sachs. No, that's not his name. What's his name? There it is, Jeffrey Sachs. Yeah, what if the ideal economy existed? And I got uh, one of my former students, Dylan Weber, is way into Jeffrey Sachs. So, hey, Dylan, check this article out. What if the ideal economy existed? It's an interesting piece that talks about how there's no one way to get to the perfect economy, but then what would it look like if we did, and how do we tackle jobs and welfare and efficient energy and combating inequality and all the rest of it. 
So here's the point he makes about healthcare. I love this. It's very interesting. In an age of rising healthcare costs, most high-income countries, Canada, the European Union's Western economies, and Japan, managed to keep their total healthcare costs below 12% of GDP with excellent health outcomes, while the U.S. spends nearly 18% of GDP, yet with decidedly mediocre health outcomes. And America's the only for-profit health system of the entire bunch. A new report by the U.S. Institute of Medicine has found that America's for-profit system squanders about $750 billion or 5% of GDP on waste, fraud, duplication, and bureaucracy. End quote. The craziest thing to me is those are the things that we always hear about are going to be the nightmares if we were to go to a single-payer system like they have in the UK and Canada and the rest of the developed world. We're going to have so much bureaucracy. You're going to have to wait forever. First of all, I don't know anybody who doesn't have to wait a long time in the United States to get medicine. Okay? We all have to wait. Yes, it happens. Does it happen more in Canada or the UK? I don't know. I haven't looked at the numbers. Maybe it does. I would argue that we could have both a system that guarantees everybody decent health care and doesn't make us wait forever. So I'm not saying that another country has a perfect system, but it sure seems to me like when you look at the numbers on the balance, we are suckers in the United States for doing 18% of our GDP to health care and our health outcomes are mediocre to say the least. And that's not okay. Speaking of Europe and the rest of the world, there is a quote I came across in Predator Nation. I'm still reading it, people. It's a fascinating book, and I finally got through the part about, he has this whole section about, oh, we ought to prosecute these people for this, and here are all the laws that are being broken, and I kind of dozed off a little bit while I was reading that. But then he got to a part about how the hooliganism on Wall Street spread to the rest of the world. And he had a really interesting part about Europe, especially Greece. Because for a long time, I was in this conundrum where I wasn't really sure I understood Greece. Because I heard two points of view on Greece. And and neither of them I really could get behind 100%. One point of view said that Greece was the land of insane waste and everybody was living off the government's check, and nobody worked, and nobody paid any taxes, and nobody did any, everybody was just getting fat checks, and everybody was having these huge fat bonuses, and people were retiring at the age of 22 or whatever, and it was all this land of just pathetic non-workingness. And that was why Greece crashed and burned. Then other things I heard were, the Greek working class is working so hard, and they're so noble, and 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 they they work until they're dead, and the and the and the the working class is being tread upon, and the boot of global capital is coming down on Greece's neck, and it's totally not fair. And I don't know really which one of those I can get behind, because they both sound a little flawed to me, and obviously the truth is going to be somewhere in the middle, and it's not an easy answer to explain what's going on in Greece. However. Charles Ferguson in Predator Nation, pages 214 to 215, had this to say, which I find very important and relevant to the discussion. At the beginning of 2008, Greece had the highest ratio of debt to GDP in the Eurozone, and its ratio was less than 110%. Italy's was slightly lower, just over 100%. Ireland's debt to GDP ratio was under 70%, Spain's was about 40%, and Portugal's was only about 25%, far lower and more conservative than the United States, Germany, or most other developed nations. But by the start of 2012, four years later, Greece's debt level was 170% of GDP, Ireland's was over 
over 100%. Spain's was over 60%. And stunningly, Portugal's debt-to-GDP ratio had more than quadrupled to 110%. These catastrophic increases were not caused by sudden, simultaneous outbreaks of lavish spending. Nothing like, say, the borrowing and spending binge that characterized the United States during the bubble. Rather, this huge, sudden increase in Eurozone debt-to-GDP ratios was caused by the Great Recession, combined with the need for emergency stimulus, a.k.a. deficit spending, to avert total economic collapse. In other words, it was caused by the U.S. financial sector. So, don't give me a whole bunch of hogwash about how, oh, it's just the natural course of things, or it was all the lavish spending, as he pointed it wasn't. It was it, a lot of it, and I'm not going to say all of it, but a lot of it came from the U.S. Wall Street criminality that was going on, and it makes me sick. Speaking of criminality, we will end with an article from Business Week, which the headline is, Mobile Payments, A New Frontier for Criminals. And I didn't even thought of this, I guess, but I should have, but... On the other hand, I don't really have a cell phone. I have an iPod Touch, which I have to connect to Wi-Fi, and it's a big pain in the neck. But apparently, that's a lot safer. And I'm not ever going to use it to buy stuff. Like, I just don't think I'm ever going to do that. So, I mean, I say that. Maybe I will. Anyway, here's the article. Here's the, the first paragraph, and then, yeah, the first two paragraphs. Eddie Lee has created an app that lets him steal a credit card by simply waving his Samsung, Nex Samsung Nexus S phone over a leather wallet tucked into the back pocket of a stranger's jeans. He can then walk into a nearby store and tap his phone at a cash register to charge a sandwich, a coffee, or even a flat-screen TV to the card. Fortunately, Lee's not a thief, but a security expert paid to find vulnerabilities in wireless payment technologies. By 2015, customers worldwide will buy $1.3 trillion worth of goods with their phones and tablets four times the amount today, forecasts Juniper Research. The expectation is that fraud will account for 1.5% of all mobile payment transactions in four to five years, says Aviva Litan, an analyst at tech researcher Gartner. End quote. So, I, I just, first of all, I just think it's kind of weird that you're, you're, you're waving a phone in order to pay for things. I, it seems to me, like, I, I don't know. It seems to me like at the very... I don't know what's wrong with a card. Is it really that big of a deal to pull a card out and hand it to the person? And they can look at the name at least? I mean, okay, granted, that's not a lot of security, but it's something. If I, It's like in The Jerk. You remember that movie with Steve Martin? And the three guys are in the car, and they're like, hey, give me some, you know, it's a horrible racist thing against Mexicans. But they're like, hey, fill it up, man. Give us four white wall tires, and I'll put it on his credit card. And the guy goes, Steve Martin says, uh, would you like a fill up, fill up on your car there, Mrs. Nussbaum? <laughs> he's like, uh, I, I'm Mr. Nussbaum. I'm, a, I'm her husband. And he's like, okay, no sweat. Uh, <laughs> so I just think that uh, it's, this seems to be a, um, a case of, oh, sorry, there's a, another part of the article. It was on the next page. You mean Google Docs splits things into pages? What? It's Google Drive now. They had a thing that said, I will get back to the article about people stealing things with your phone. Don't worry. We're getting back to that in a minute. But first, Google Docs has changed its name to Google Drive, and I guess there's other things that you can do with it now. I don't know. I guess it's cloud. Everything's in the cloud. Dude, cloud. That's yeah, Web 3.0. Is that 3.0 or is that still 2.0? I don't know. Anyway, uh, so I, I had switched back to the Google Docs format, and they had this thing that said, you can restore the Google Drive format anytime you want. Would you mind telling us why you switched? And I wrote, you really want to know why I switched? Because I spent several years figuring out how Google Docs works, damn it, and then you change it into Google Drive. Why don't you quit fixing things that are broken? 
They haven't gotten back to me about that. Anyway, the article about <laughs> criminals with the cell phones. Uh, to rev up adoption of their own platforms, companies such as PayPal, Google, and Square, which I think is probably the people who do Foursquare, but uh, maybe it's Square Enix. They do a lot of online transactions. More people are still buying Final Fantasy VII. What is wrong with these people? Why don't they wait for the HD remake? It's never coming. That's why. Get back to work, kid. That's an executive sucking on a cigar. Hey, get back to work there, kid. Um... Companies such as Pay- I'm amusing myself here. This is great. Amusing myself. That'll be the title of the episode. Uh, or maybe I'm amusing other people too. And pissing in your car. Peeing in your car. Uh, to rev up adoption of their own platforms, companies such as PayPal, Google, and Square are under, quote, pressure to remove the controls, thereby improving ease of use, Litan says. Am I crazy or is that the entire problem with our entire economy? Removing controls. Let's remove controls and anybody can do whatever they want with this technology. That's what happened with collateralized debt obligations and credit default swaps. That's what Brooksley Bourne said we should not do. That's what that other dude and I just bookmarked the page in Predator Nation where, here we go, I got his name, Rajan. Uh, Raghuram Rajan. Then the chief economist of the International Monetary Fund rained on the parade by de- delivering a brilliant, prescient, scary paper. The audience included Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, Tim Geithner, Larry Summers, and most of the Federal Reserve Board. And they were like, you're a Luddite, you're a lunatic, quit trying to get in the way of progress and economic growth. So anyway, this thing, this is the supremacy of convenience over security. Let's get rid of the controls so everybody can use it more easily. It's more convenient to wave your phone in front of a thing than to hand someone a car to charge it. And often elsewhere, we see the supremacy of convenience over sanity. As the dead Kennedy said, give me convenience or give me death. That's exactly what we've got here, people. It's not cool. I am angry about it. And I'm angry about this quote not working. It's not a quote. It's a sound quote. There it is. most unprofessional show ever uh so anyway whatever there's a really interesting piece on a blog called the educatorsroom.com and it was called the exhaustion of the american teacher and it was one of those pieces when i read it i was just like yes that's exactly how i feel that's how a lot of people i know feel and it, it takes a broad brush to some especially parents but uh whatever um so here's the piece it's called the exhaustion of the american teacher and this is an excerpt from that piece not the whole piece Are you going to read the whole piece, Eric? No, I'm not. The American child has changed, and not necessarily for the better. Now, coming out of the article, I I, I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to talk about the American child, or the American teacher, or the American parent. There's lots of different children in this country. There's like 350 million Americans. That means there's like, what, 150, 200 million kids, and they're not all the same. Anyway. The American child has changed, not necessarily for the better. Many shrill voices argue that teachers must change, too, by simply working harder. The favored lever for achieving this prescribed augmentation of the American school teacher's work ethic is fear, driven by a progressively more precarious employment situation. But teachers, by and large, aren't afraid. They're just tired. Meanwhile, no one is demanding American non-teachers change anything. Michelle Ree wastes none of her vast supply of indignation on American public policies that leave a quarter of our children in poverty, while not coincidentally, the profits of Ree's corporate backers reach new heights. So I just thought that was very interesting, and uh, yeah, I, I, I encourage you to read the whole thing because it does crystallize a lot of what 
we teachers feel is not making it into the equation and people need to consider and I, I feel he is hard on parents but some parents need someone to go hard on them because and just like some kids need people to go hard on them because a lot of kids are slackers and they'll admit it they're just, i'm just being a slacker i'm like well quit being a slacker Gah! Anyway, uh, the uh, the Chicago Reader had a very interesting article called Today's Lesson, Charters Do Not Outperform Unionized Schools. And it has a link to a very interesting article that I will excerpt uh, in a moment. So the piece is, uh, it's all about how there's been a bunch of numbers released recently about how well schools perform. And in Chicago, there's this big push to have a bunch of charter schools. And the idea is they're going to do a lot better than Public schools, because and a lot of charters are public schools, but the the non-charter public schools. Uh, and the reason is because charters don't have to employ union teachers, and unions protect bad teachers, and they protect lazy teachers, and they're 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 protecting child molesters and all this other stuff. And so therefore, these charter schools are going to do a lot better because they don't have to deal with all those stupid unions. So here's what the article says. According to the anti-union charter craze, we must annihilate the teachers' union so that the weak teachers can be replaced with the untold thousands of good ones eager to teach in charter schools where they can work longer for less at the whims of autocrats who can fire them for not doing what can't be done, like UNO CEO Juan Rangel did to David Corral, a former gym teacher fired for not being in two pl places at once. Read that article, people. I'm telling you, it's insane. The story of this dude, uh, David Corral, the article is called Fighting for the Right to Fire Bad Teachers and Good Ones Too. It's just insane. you got to read this dude's story. Uh, there was this thing going on in the locker room, and he couldn't monitor it because he was in the main part of the gym where he was supposed to be taking attendance, but his laptop didn't work, so he had to go into his office, and then they fired him because they said he shouldn't have been in his office, he should have been in the gym, but he couldn't because his thing wasn't working, and the rule was you had to file attendance within like five minutes of class starting or something like that, and he couldn't do it with the laptop he had in the gym. And that's even beside the point. It wasn't going on in the gym. The, mis the misbehavior, it was like this mock attack thing. I don't even know what it was. But that was going on in the locker room. And he couldn't monitor the locker room. He was supposed to be in the gym. So it didn't even matter. But they were looking for someone to blame. And it was totally bogus. And so, yeah. It, read that article. Anyway, back to this thing about uh, whether charters outperform unionized schools or not. There are 541 elementary schools in Chicago. Based on the composite ISAT scores for 2011, the last full set available, none of the top 10 are charters. None of the top 20, top 30, or top 40 either. In fact, you've got to go to 41 to find a charter. Take a bow, CICS Irving Park. Most of the 49 charters on the list are clustered near the Great Middle, alongside most of their unionized neighborhood schools. End quote. And this goes to point to the fact that a lot of people have a lot of supposed magic bullets for how we fix schools. And I know that there are some schools that have done amazing things to close achievement gaps and to, to fight against the entrenched problems and the, the serious flaws we have in our education system. But the point is this. There is no silver bullet. There is no magic answer. What we do about it is we work on it. We reduce class sizes so that teachers have the time to provide individualized help to students who need it. That's the only thing that has ever been useful for any student ever in the history of the world. The bigger the class size, the less time the teacher has to deal with students one-on-one. -on -one. And any student who's ever been imp impacted by a teacher will tell you that the, the impact has come from the one-on-one -on -one experiences. And some students are really lucky to get those, and a lot of students aren't. 
And and the more you keep burdening us with all these things we need to do, the more likely we are to go crazy because we're not able to provide the kind of one-on-one -on -one time that we need to give to kids in order to actually help them get better at stuff. And speaking of teachers going crazy, you like that bridge there? It's a cool link. Uh, Stu, thank you for sending me the article about <laughs> The headline was, Michigan professor strips naked shouts, there is no freaking God! Except he used the actual F word. The rigors of teaching apparently got to Michigan State University professor John McCarthy from Monday. According to multiple sources, the math teacher stripped naked in the middle of his Calculus 1 class and started shouting obscenities. Freshman Kyle Hillman told MLLive.com that while walking the class through a routine derivative equation, McCarthy said, quote, Math is all about questions and answers, and Steve Jobs invented the computer. But what do computers do? They ask questions and we answer them! Later in the article, according to the Huffington Post, one of McCarthy's obscene rants included, THERE IS NO FREAKING GOD! And that's the news from the world of education. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. Jason Gallagher also sent me a thing. Uh, G4TV apparently has a very interesting site that has a lot of robot news. So if killer robots like this section aren't uh, giving you enough news about robots, you can go check out more stuff from G4TV, and I'll put a link in the show notes about that. Meanwhile, in the miscellaneous file, we have an article about Batman charged with obstructing a police investigation. Okay. According to the Associated Press, Michigan police were searching for a man in Petoskey, Michigan, when 33-year-old Mark Wayne Williams, a.k.a. Batman, offered to help with the search. Now, out of the article, I think they're doing a bad job reporting this because we didn't hear anything about how he entered the scene. Did he skid to a halt on his Batmobile that's really just a Schwinn with some duct tape cardboard painted black on it? Or did he swoop down from the rooftops with a, a bungee cord that kind of made him look like he was flying, but not really? Or did he just stride up purposefully and say, I'm Batman. What's the problem? And how did he talk? We didn't get anything about how he spoke. We just had the words he said. That's bogus, man. Come on. We don't even have the words he said. Come on. What the heck? Uh, state, what we have is, back to the article, State Police Sergeant Jeff Gorno said that officers asked Williams to leave the scene, but he insisted on helping police find their criminal. <laughs> Out of the article. I just love the idea that he's going to be like, I can help you find this guy. Sir, please leave. We don't need your help. You need my help. You go get Susan and I'll help Harvey Dent. What are you talking about? Here, the scarecrow. Ah, he's drugging me. I'm having hallucinations. <laughs> Isn't on Arrested Development? I'm on Mushrooms. Okay, back to the article. I'm amusing myself. Uh, back to the article. Quote, this is the quote from Gorno. He wouldn't clear the scene, and we had a canine out there, and he kept screwing up the scent. <laughs> out of the article. I can't help wondering if this, if this guy's some crazy homeless dude, and he's just like, I can help you. He's like, sir, you smell horrible. Our dog can't concentrate. And he's like, do you have some treats for me? He's like, I don't have anything for you, dog. Back to the article, quote, He said he wanted to help us look for the driver. We didn't want the dog to track Batman. <laughs> this is the actual quote. I swear I'm not making this up. Read the article. We didn't want the dog to track Batman instead of the accident scene. And he was getting in the way of officers who had a job to do. So there's your lesson for today, kids. If you want to be Batman, make sure that you don't smell bad so that the dog will chase you instead of the criminals. Uh, one, two, one, two, uh. 
Uh, this week I want to tell you about third base, and I'm worried that I may have spoken about them before, and I don't know. I'm not keeping a track of which hip-hop artists I've talked about on previous podcasts, and I don't want to repeat myself, but uh, I don't know. There's a lot of good artists out there to talk about. So anyway, if I'm repeating myself, let me know, and I'll start keeping track. If somebody out there is feeling generous, you could go through the podcast and figure out who I talked about in each of the hip-hop sections, and that way I could have a list and I wouldn't have to repeat myself. Uh, but whatever. This week, third base. Uh, third base was composed of three people, DJ Daddy Rich and MC Search and Prime Minister Pete Nice. And they put out two albums as a group. And that's a shame because they were a really good combination and they put out some awesome music when they were together. Uh, their first album was called The Cactus Album. And haha, it's a penis joke. Uh, the second album was called Derelicts of Dialect. And this is where they really hit their stride musically. And the whole album has a lot of these funny skits and this silly little nonsense. But it also had a lot of important points they were making about social issues and stuff. And it just sounded funky. So I'll play you an excerpt from the Derelicts of Dialect here, which was the first actual song on that album. And this actually, it's interesting. This was the first CD I ever bought with my own money. I got a CD player when I was like a sophomore in high school I think and it was awesome because I could play music and, and it had this cool thing you could see the CD spinning around in, behind this little window so it just added this new dimension of the music that like dude it's spinning and, and you could rewind things in a way that was much easier than it was on cassette and I was blown away by CDs when they first came out and that's a magic the children of today will never know so anyway here's third base derelicts of dialect the great will always soar above the medium they create while others destroy. Never had a wasted mind, had the time erecting rhyme, my corns gifted lines. The foes I know puts the papers in pockets, swings the things absorbed in my sockets. A ten spot I got stacks of LP wax, corduroy slacks, loops, and sales tags on the racks, but my label is derelict. Spick and span, I slam his bulls your leg. Now I'm not ever gonna pretend to know what the heck Prime Minister Pete Nice was talking about on a lot of his tracks, but he's got such a sick flow and he was so good at spitting things from where he was at. And MC Search was good too. He was a little more um, I don't know, I got the sense that he was trying to be a little more street than he really was, but whatever. I mean, he, he was an authentic individual, and he was a great rapper. And it was a shame that they broke up. Uh, MC Search did one solo album called The Return of the Real or something like that. And then Prime Minister Pete Nice and, and uh, DJ Daddy Rich did an album together called uh, Ashes, Dust to Dust. And they had some good stuff there. They were into some dark territory. But it was a good album, and there was a lot of uh, cool stuff on that one. And I think that's the last any of them ever put out. But that's a shame because, as I say, they're a good group. So check out their bass, uh, Pioneers. And, I, you know, I didn't mention, but I suppose it bears mentioning that they were one of the first groups, in addition to the Beastie Boys, that proved that white folks could hold their own in the rap game. But they were they were aware of where they were coming from. They were, they were cognizant of their own privilege. And I think that's one of the things that's always bugged me about Eminem is that, I mean, don't get me wrong, Eminem's an amazingly gifted lyricist. I'm not going to dispute that, but he always seemed, up until he did that song, White America, that he said, oh, it doesn't matter. I mean, he said, Eminem said at one point, I don't make uh, black music, I don't make white music, I make fight music. And he also said something about, I don't know any of the actual context, but he was like, how can I be white? I don't even exist. So he was really dodging his whiteness for a while, which is something a lot of white folks do. They don't want to admit that they have any privilege. And they don't want to admit that. And they want to think that we live in this colorblind society that Stephen Colbert is always mocking. People tell me I'm white and I believe him because I have my own TV show. But 
the fact is that I'm sorry, white privilege is real and, and white rappers benefit from that privilege, as Eminem pointed out in white America. So I think that we ought to give it up to groups like House of Pain and Third Base and Beastie Boys who recognize that they were in some ways they were working with a guest pass and that they were coming to hip hop from from within the community. It's not as though they came from outside and dropped in on hip hop, but that hip-hop grew out of an experience that was, generally speaking, by and large, not white. The South Bronx had the Cross Bronx Expressway plowed through it. Robert Moses was the white guy who planned that Cross Bronx Expressway, but the effect that it had on people in the South Bronx, that those people were generally not white. And that's where hip-hop came from, and, and that's, that's necessary to understand. Again, it doesn't mean you can't do good hip-hop if you're not white, but you have to be aware of that context. And it seems to me like a lot of white people in the game today aren't, will, aren't, aren't interested in paying respect to that context, and, and I don't know that there's necessarily one thing that that looks like to pay respect to that context, but it starts with knowing about it, and sad to say, a lot of people don't even know about it, black and white, in terms of where hip-hop came from, and, and just the, the, the powerful communitarian elements of hip-hop. That's really what's most important to me, so that's what I want to strive to let people know about. Read Jeff Chang's Can't Stop, Won't Stop. That's got a lot of really good context about the history of hip-hop. End of lecture. All right, so whatever. It's time for us to talk about the quote of the week. Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the engine is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. And it comes from a guy named Stephen Mitchell. But I have to confess something, people. Don't tell anybody. I don't know which Stephen Mitchell it's from. The Wikipedia disambiguation page has like 10 Stephen Mitchells. And a number of them we can probably rule out. The quote I have is about the power of the human mind. But I don't know. So it, probably Steve Mitchell, the basketball player, born in 1964, is probably not the person that this quote is from. It could be, but I'm guessing probably not. It could be Steve Mitchell, the sailor, born in 1970. He's a British sailor. Uh, there's also a Stephen Mix Mitchell, who was a U.S. senator from Connecticut, 1743 to 1835. And then an MP uh, from Scot uh, a Scottish Unionist politician named Stephen Mitchell, 1884 to 1951. I'm guessing that's probably not who the quote is from, but it, it's probably either this translator who was born in 1943. Uh, he's also a poet and an anthologist, and he translated the Tao Te Ching, and he's translated uh, the Psalms and Gilgamesh and the Bhagavad Gita and all sorts of other stuff. Or it could be Stephen A. Mitchell, the psychologist, uh, who was born in 1946 and died in 2000, uh, who did a lot of work on the human mind, which also makes me think that maybe it was him. So I think either of those are a good choice. If anybody knows who which Stephen Mitchell this quote is from, please let me know, because I found this in a book, and I thought it was an awesome quote, but I don't know which Stephen Mitchell it's from. Anyway, here's the quote. Mind is everything. Mind pulls the universe out of a top hat, bows to its own applause, and walks off stage grinning. Isn't that a good quote? Okay, that's it, people. We made it under an hour. Yes! Under 50 minutes, but actually we're a little over 50 minutes. But maybe not when I cut stuff out. Who knows? It's anybody's guess. Uh, that's the end of the show. Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is online at fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction I've written and multimedia I've made and lots of other stuff. Shoutouts this week to Dylan Weber. Uh, check out that thing from your buddy. I don't remember his name, but you know what I was talking about. And uh, also to the Duchess for being awesome and 
and my brother for playing some stuff I requested on the radio and for everybody who listens and to everybody who sends me things over the email and the Twitter and everybody who retweets stuff about the show. I really appreciate everybody's support. Uh, I never thought when I started doing this again that people were going to be so into it and get so much out of it. So it really makes me feel good that I'm providing something kind of worthwhile here because as I've said, this is all under the heading of the people need to know about the can eat more. Uh, so whatever. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb stuff I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy man. Deal with it, okay? Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Please get in touch with feedback or questions or news articles you find. I, I don't promise I'll use them all, but uh, a lot of stuff I get I use because it's interesting stuff. Send it to esp at fbesp.org. That's it. I'm going to stop talking. Now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Thank you for coming to Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you.